Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you uh, this question. Have you ever dropped something and it became a, a huge mess on the floor? You know, maybe, uh, uh, maybe you went in the, the fridge and you grabbed a jar of pickles, you pulled it out, you didn't realize how slippery it was, and all of a sudden you realize it's slipping out of your hands. And, and if this has happened, you know what happens next, right? Everything suddenly goes into slow motion, right? You watch, you're like, oh... And you try and you grab, but you know, there's a point where you're like, oh, this is going to go bad. And that thing hits the floor, it smashes and glass shatters everywhere and pickles roll everywhere and pickle juice seeps everywhere, right? Has something like that happened to you? Maybe it's not a jar of pickles. Maybe it's a can of paint. You know, you went in the bedroom, you're like, I'll just some touch up. And next thing you know, there it is through the air, ah, on the carpet. I read, uh, I read about a guy who went into the pantry to get a jar of salsa and uh, it slipped out of his hand and he watches it went down and just exploded. Salsa on the wall, salsa on all the jars, salsa on the door, salsa on his legs. He looked down, he saw what a mess it was, how much work it was. He quietly closed the door, <laughs> turned to his wife, said, honey, I think it's time to sell the house, Right? <laughs> I mean, it's terrible when these things happen, but, but they just happen, right? I mean, it's frustrating, though, because you know what? We weren't trying to make a mess. In fact, we're doing the opposite. We're trying to help. We're trying to get the pickles or paint the bedroom or, or, or get the salsa, and it just happened. And now suddenly, you know, our life has changed. We got to spend an hour cleaning the whole thing up. We have this mess. Now, messes happen, but sometimes, sometimes the, the real mess in our life isn't something that lands on the kitchen floor, is it? I mean, sometimes the real mess in our life is much bigger than that and takes a lot more work to clean up. Uh, sometimes the real mess in our life comes in the relationships that we have. And the, and the really messy ones are always relationships with people that we have a very important relationship with, family or friends or, or coworkers, people that are important to us who have a huge influence in our life. And sometimes it's the same thing. You know, uh, we... we we, we don't mean to make a mess. No, nobody that I know goes into a, a relationship saying, well, I'm going to make a mess out of this. It's just like that jar of pickles or that can of paint. You don't expect it. You don't plan it. And yet something goes wrong and something is said and something is done and, and, and something else happens and it gets worse and worse. And you know, sometimes it seems like the, the harder you try to fix it, the greater the mess becomes until, until you're stuck. You're saying, my goodness, how did I get here? I mean, I had such good intentions. I meant for this so well, and, and now it's this huge mess. And sometimes, sometimes if that mess goes on for a long time and gets really bad, sometimes we begin to ask other questions like, where's God in all of this? Does he know? Does he see all this? And if he knows, if he sees it, does he care? And if he cares, why isn't he doing something about it? You know, the story that we're going to look at today is a story about three people for whom this exact thing happened. Three very good people who were in a good relationship with one another, who tried to do what was best in their situation, and yet somehow it all fell apart. It all became incredibly messy. And it's a story of how God is part of that and how he sees what happens and how he responds to the mess that comes into their life. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. 
Genesis chapter 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one somewhere in a chair near you there. And you can find this story on page 11 of your Bible. The story is about Abram and his wife Sarai and a third person, an Egyptian servant of theirs named Hagar. And if you haven't been with us over the past number of, uh, of weeks, if you're not familiar with the story of Abram and Sarai, the story begins when God calls Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans, out of ancient Mesopotamia, and calls him to follow him into the land of Canaan. And there in the land of Canaan, he makes him this incredible promise. He says that from Abram would come this great nation and that that nation would possess that land in which he lived and that from that nation, God would bless all the nations. It was a beautiful promise, and it's a promise that God, by this time, has repeated several times. There's only one very major problem to all of this, and that is that Abram and Sarai continue to get older and older, and they still haven't had any children. In fact, they can't seem to have children. And this, obviously, is a major problem for them. It's a problem for them culturally, because in that day, if you couldn't have children, it was considered the curse of the gods. It was considered that somehow the gods were unhappy with you and therefore they weren't allowing you to have children. But not only culturally, much more importantly for them, it was a theological issue for them. Because this God who had come to them, who had called them out of the land of of the Chaldeans and into Canaan, he had made this promise to them and yet they've waited and waited and waited and he isn't doing anything. And so this poses a real dilemma for them. I mean, the question for them is, is this, Is the problem that this God is not trustworthy? That he can't actually fulfill his promise? Or is there something wrong with us? Is there something that we're missing? It's been 10 years since God called them. 10 years that they've been trying to have a baby. And if you've ever had an experience with infertility, you can imagine how very hard all of those 10 years would have been for them. And this is where they are when we come to this story. And so we want to begin by reading the first four verses of Genesis chapter 16. This is the word of God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This was the problem. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So... After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Okay, let's stop there. So here's the situation. Ten years. No children. Must have been huge pressure on, on Abram, but especially on Sarai. And after ten years, she comes to Abram. She says, you know what, Abram? I got an idea. I got a plan. Might not be my first choice, but it's totally legitimate. She says, I'm going to give you my maidservant, Hagar, to be a surrogate mother for us, to have a child for us. Now, you and I, we might struggle a little bit with that because in part we know how the story turns out. You might say, well, is that that really a good thing to do? But you have to understand that day was totally normal and acceptable. In fact, archaeologists have found a number of documents from that time that show that this was a common practice of the day. In fact, in many ways, it was expected of a couple that couldn't have children that they would do this. And it was understood that the child that would be born to that, to that servant would 
legally and in the eyes of everyone in that culture belonged to the woman who was the owner of that servant. In other words, if Hagar had a child for Abram and Sarai, everyone in that day would have uh, acknowledged that that child was Sarai's child and the rightful heir of Abram. So it was a simple, a reasonable, and, and really a wholly acceptable solution to a very real problem for this couple. And frankly, it was a win for everybody. I mean, there was no evil intent on the part of anyone here. Plus, there was no obvious disregard for what God had instructed. Because if you look back in the previous chapters, God has told Abram several times that through him, he would have this nation that would come, this child that would become this nation. But nowhere does he physically say that physically that child would be born of Sarai. Plus, in that day and culture, as we've already pointed out, that child would actually be considered to be Sarai's son. So there's nothing culturally or morally wrong with what they were doing. Plus, plus it would be so good for the family. I mean, it would be great for Abram. Finally, finally a son and an heir. And the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that God gave him so long ago already. It would be great for Sarai. I mean, in her old age, she'd have this beautiful little baby. And her shame that she bore with her everywhere in that culture would be taken away from her. And it would be good for Hagar. I mean, Hagar would go from being this lowly maidservant in this household to being the mother and the wife of the, of the patriarch of the family. And plus, she, she had she'd done nothing wrong to get here. I mean, she hadn't, it wasn't her idea. She hadn't campaigned for it. She hadn't secretly seduced Abram. In fact, the opposite. She was being invited by this couple that she liked, that she served, to come and to help them with this significant problem that they had. It would have been good for everyone. And so these three people do what is totally reasonable in response to a very real problem in their lives. And every single one of them enters into that arrangement in good faith and with the best of intentions. And then, and then what everyone hoped for happened. Hagar became pregnant. And you know, in this family, this should have been uh, the, the, the source of a great deal of joy and rejoicing. I mean, this is what everyone was looking for. But instead, instead it spirals down into this huge mess. Look at what happens next in verses 4 to 6. And he, Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. It's amazing. It's amazing how quickly this brilliant plan that they had falls apart. You know, Hagar gets pregnant. Right away, she begins to think that she's better and more important than her mistress. So she begins to look on Sarai with contempt. And Sarai responds with jealousy and anger. She turns her wrath on Abram. She says to him, this is all your fault. May God judge between you and me because both he and I know that this is because of you. Maybe it was Abram's fault. Maybe he'd been subtly pressuring her for, for over 10 years to do something and she'd finally said, okay, I'll do this. But maybe not. Maybe he had nothing to do with it. He just went along with it. She's just mad at him. 
doesn't matter. Whatever the case is, suddenly there's this huge, huge conflict between this husband and this wife. And Abram, who could have and should have done something, he just washes his hands of the whole affair. He says, your servant, your problem. And Hagar, who is counting upon this powerful man in, in this house to protect her and to care for her, suddenly he abandons her. And now she is at the mercy of this woman who she served so faithfully for all these years. And Sarai turns on her and attacks her and becomes cruel to her. And, and everything has gone wrong. And, and suddenly they find themselves in the middle of this huge, huge mess. Yeah, you know, I wonder what it would have been like to live in that house during those weeks and months. I mean, I'll bet you could have cut the tension with a knife. There must have been a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of silent dinners. And maybe their family was one where there's a lot of drama, where there's a lot of screaming and yelling. Or maybe their family was one where there was just this silent, grinding pressure all the time. Whatever it was, it must have been really hard for everyone in that family. And the pressure, the pressure there mounted and it mounted day after day and week after week and month after month until finally, finally Hagar can take it no more and she runs away. I don't blame Hagar for running away. You know, running away is a very natural, it's a very common response for us when we encounter intense pressure in our life, isn't it? I mean, we see it all the time. You look at, you look at a marriage. Two people enter a marriage in love with one another with the best of intentions. They seek to do what's best, but something happens. And huge pressure comes into their marriage, into their life. And one of the first responses that people often think about is, well, if this kid's going to be like this, I'm just going to quit. I'll just get a divorce and run away. It's very common. But it's not just marriages. I mean, it's jobs. Again, you get the job. You're so excited. You have visions for where it'll go and what it'll do. And then some conflict comes. It gets hard and there's conflict between the people around you. And again, one of the, 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 the responses that we automatically have is, well, I'll just quit. I'll just go. Even in friendships, good friendships that have been going for some time, somebody says something, somebody does something. And these two who have been such good friends, something comes between them. And rather than dealing with it, the response is just to run, to just quietly drop that friendship and fade off. People run all the time. And sometimes if they can't run physically, they run emotionally. They, they just check out. They're still in the room, but they're not there anymore. They drown themselves in too much TV, too much internet, too much alcohol, too much work, too much sports. They're there, but they're long, long gone. They run away because the pressure is so intense and it's so prolonged and they don't know what to do. And the question is, where's God in all of this? Does he know? Does he care? What's he going to do? What will he do? Hagar runs away because she just can't handle it anymore. She's alone, she's pregnant, and she's desperate. And now look at what happens next in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. I'll stop there again. I love that sentence. The angel of the Lord found her. I mean, you have to think about this for a moment. You have to remember who we're talking about. We're talking about Hagar. Hagar is nobody. I mean, Hagar is an Egyptian slave woman in a foreign land. She's a foreigner. She's a slave. She's a woman in a culture that doesn't value women very much. She's pregnant. She's without protection. She's 
far away from home. And as we'll find out, the fact of the matter is, it isn't even going to be through her that God's going to fulfill his promise to Abram. She is nobody. And who comes looking for her? Who seeks her out? None other than God himself comes looking for her. In fact, theologians have a conversation about this. And there's a good case to be made that the one who came looking for her, the angel of the Lord, is really none other than Jesus himself, the second person of of the Godhead. He comes looking for Hagar. Now, we don't know that for sure, but no matter what the case, the fact of the matter is the angel of the Lord came looking for her until he found her. Now, of course, he knew where she was. But, but the image here is of this angel who comes seeking her. He comes from village to village, from well to, the, to well, asking, have you seen this Egyptian woman all by herself, pregnant, not doing well? Have you seen her? Because I'm looking for her. I'm seeking her. And he follows her until he finally catches up with her. You know, if Abram was still camped at Hebron when this story took place, that means that by the time the angel caught up with Hagar, she would have been at least 70 miles away, on foot, pregnant. That's a good week alone in the wilderness, running away. And God doesn't give up. He pursues her until he finds her. Even though she's so far away from home, he keeps seeking her out because because this is who God is. This is his character. When everything's a mess, when we're heartbroken and running away and far from home, he doesn't just let us go. He doesn't just say, well, your mess, you deal with it. Good luck. No, no, not at all. Instead, in the midst of all of the pain and the pressure and the heartache, he comes looking for us. He pursues us until he finds us. Your outline puts it this way. When everything goes wrong, God pursues us because of his great grace. Because he loves us. Because he cares for us. No matter who we are and no matter what we've done. This is his character. He's always done this. He did it in Hagar's day. He still does it today. Is this uh, great story of a woman named Anne Lamont. Uh, she wrote this uh, book called Traveling Mercies. And she describes a time in her life where, where her world was a mess. She was, uh, uh, she was addicted to cocaine and alcohol. Uh, she got involved in an affair by which she, had, uh, she got pregnant. So she went and had a, an abortion. And during that time, her best friend uh, uh, died of cancer. And throughout this whole period, every once in a while, she would just come to this little church And she'd sit in the back and she'd just stay for the singing. And as soon as the singing was done, she'd get up and leave. And her world was spiraling out of control. And on the the week of of the abortion, it it really spiraled downward. She was so disgusted with herself that she drowned her sorrows in alcohol and drugs. And on the day of the abortion, she'd been bleeding for many hours because of the abortion. And she finally fell in bed. She was shaking and, and she was so heartbroken. And she just smoked a cigarette. Then she turned off the light and just lay there in the darkness. And she said that as she lay there in the darkness, she became aware that there was someone else in the room with her, just sitting there in the corner. She thought it must have been the the presence of her father because she'd always felt his presence when she was frightened and alone. But she said the, the feeling was so strong that she actually turned on the lights and looked around the room. Of course, no one was there. So she turned the lights back off again. She lay down in the dark. But, but after a while she lay there, she said, she began to realize that the person who was in the room with her was actually Jesus himself. 
That's interesting. She, when she realized that it was Jesus in the room with her, this is what she wrote. She said, I was appalled. I thought about what everyone would think of me if, uh, if I became a Christian. And it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen to me. And she turned to the wall. She said out loud, I would rather die. And she fell asleep. The next morning she woke up and the feeling was gone. She said, well, that must have just been the drinking and the, and the fear and the self-hatred and the, and, and the bleeding. But she said after that, it felt like everywhere she went, there was this little cat that was following her, just asking, waiting for her to reach down and, and to pick it up, open the door and let her in. But she said she knew what would happen if she did that. I mean, if you let a cat in, even for just one moment, just give it a little milk, stay forever. Well, a week later, she went back to that same church. And on that morning, she said she was so hungover, she couldn't even stand up for the singing. She stayed through the singing. She decided to stay for the sermon. And she thought what the pastor said was so ridiculous, she couldn't believe anyone would listen to it. And then when it was done, the congregation began to sing one more song. And she said as they sang sang that song, it became so raw and so pure for her that she just couldn't get up and leave. And this is what she writes next. She says, it was as if all the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction and I raced home and I felt that little cat running along at my heels. And I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers. And I opened the door to my houseboat. And I stood there a minute and then I hung my head. And I said, I quit. And I took a long deep breath and I said out loud, All right, all right, you can come in. And then she writes, So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. You know, in in the messiness of her life, When all that she wanted to do was run away, just get away from it all, Jesus pursued her by his grace, by his deep love, because he loves her so much. He he did it for Hagar, Hagar, and he still does it today. You know, if there's a mess in your world and you just can't seem to get it under control and all you want to do is run away, you need to know that Jesus wants to enter into your world. Because he cares, because he loves you, because he is so full of grace. And look what happens when he finds Hagar. Look at verse 8. And he, the angel of the Lord, said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? And notice several things. And notice, first of all, that he speaks to her by her name. He knows who she is. Notice also that he He speaks to her with great dignity. He doesn't say to her, you foolish woman, what are you doing here? He doesn't say to her, stop crying, smarten up. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't lecture her. Instead, he speaks to her with gentleness and compassion and dignity. But notice also that he reminds her of her identity. He says to her, Hagar, the servant of Sarai. He reminds her of who she is. And then he asks her this, where are you coming from and where are you going? And you know, when we're running away from huge pressure in our life, when we just want to get away from it all, he comes to us 
And he addresses us with dignity. And he reminds us of who we are. He says, you know, Jonathan, servant of Jesus, where have you come from? And where are you going? And you know, then he just listens. And you notice that when he asks Hagar this question, she just pours her heart out to him. She tells him everything. She tells him how Sarah has been so cruel to her and all the things that happened and how Abram didn't help her and, 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 and what happened next. And then he shares how deeply hurt she is. She says, I, I didn't mean for any of this to happen. She just pours her heart out to him and she tells him all about the past. And you know what he does? He just listens. He just hears her all out. But notice that she doesn't tell him about the future. She doesn't tell him about where she is going. Now, it's pretty obvious where she's going. The well is on the way to Shur, and Shur is on the border between Canaan and Egypt. She is going back to Egypt. She's not quite sure what's going to happen there, but that's where she is going. You know, if you're running from the pressures in your life, the question for you is this, where are you going? Are you going back to Egypt? Have you thought about that? I mean, what, what, what do you think is going to happen to this runaway, pregnant, Egyptian slave woman when she gets back to Egypt? You think they're going to roll out the red carpet and invite her to come live in the palace? Of course not. Now, certainly on some level, she knows that. And yet, because of the, the pain in her life, because of how desperate she is, she hasn't really thought it through. And often that's a problem for us too. When things get really hard, the pressure gets so intense in our life, we just want to get out of that situation so bad that we don't really think through where we're going or what the consequences will be. We don't stop to consider if, if where, we're, where we're going is actually going to actually be better than the place that we are running from. You know, if you're experiencing that kind of pain, if you're on the run, I understand. We understand. But you need to know that God is pursuing you. He wants to speak into your life and you should stop and talk to him. You should tell him where you've come from. You should tell him all the stuff that happened and who said what and how you feel and how you didn't mean for it. You should tell him all of that. You know why? Because he loves you. Because he'll listen. Because he cares. But you should also have a good discussion with him about where the path you're on is going. What are the long-term consequences, not just a week from now or a month or a year, but three and five and ten years out? Because often, if you trace that all the way down, whether you're running physically or emotionally, it doesn't lead to a great place. God comes. He listens to Hagar. And then after he listens, then he speaks to her. Listen to what he says in verses 9 to 12. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. God says three things to Hagar. At first, he instructs her to go back to Sarai. Now, when he says go back and submit to her, that word, that Hebrew word submit, actually carries the, the undertone of affliction. In other words, he, he, he's calling Hagar to go back to a hard place. He's not saying to Hagar, you just go back, I'll take care of it, it'll all be fine. No, no, no. 
He's sending her back to live in the midst of a very difficult situation, to endure some affliction, to live in that difficult place. That's the first instruction that he has for her. It's in the immediate, right now, right here, this is what you need to do. You need to stop running and you need to go back and deal with this. But then he, he says a second word to her and it's a promise. In fact, if you notice, it's a very similar promise to the one that he gave to Abram. And that is that, that her offspring would be beyond number. She wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to count them all. You see this, this mess that she finds herself in? Turns out that God has a hand in it. It's actually part of what he's doing. He isn't stuck. He isn't saying, oh yeah, I wonder what I'm going to do here. No, not at all. He's actually in control of this whole situation and he's using it as part of his plan and purpose. So he gives her an immediate instruction, go back and deal with this. But he also gives her a long-term promise. I promise you, I'm working this all out. This is all part of what I'm doing. And then thirdly, he gives her a promise for the near future, for the middle years. He says, you're going to have this son and you're going to name him Ishmael and he's going to grow up to be a strong and independent man. And he's going to have to be because there's going to be all kinds of significant pressure that comes into his life. You see, the message that the angel of the Lord is communicating to Hagar is that this hard thing, this mess that she finds herself in, it's all actually the God's at work in it. Now, she isn't going to see it right away. In fact, it's going to take her some years to see it. But she needs to know, she needs to understand that God is at work in the middle of all this mess. And this is the second lesson we learned from this story. When everything goes wrong in our world, when it seems out of control, it's not out of control for God. In fact, God is at work in the midst of it. And here's the point. God will work through our circumstances if we let him. You see, the problem that we have is that we often misunderstand how God works in our lives. We, we think that, you know, there's this day when we give our life to Jesus. We commit to him. And then if we were to plot what would happen in our life, our spiritual growth, it would go like this. We'd go in a straight line. We would just grow steadily, slow and steady, slow and steady, all the way until the day we die. And then we go to heaven. We say, well, that's how we should grow spiritually. But that's not at all how anyone grows spiritually, is it? I mean, if you were to plot your spiritual growth or anyone's, it would go like this. You'd begin to grow and then it would take a curve and then it would twist. It might plummet. It might shoot up. It might flatline for a while. It might grow steadily for a little bit. And then it's going to do more of that. Nobody grows in a straight line. It doesn't happen that way. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes it's in the, in, in the biggest mess in our life that we have the greatest growth. If, if we allow God to work in our hearts, if we don't insist that we're going to run off to Egypt. You know, sometimes it's in those moments when we question if God even exists. When we question how come he wouldn't do something and we beg and we cry out and we say, you know, God, this mess, I just, I give it to you. No, actually, I take it back. No, I give it to you. No, I take it back. Oh, God, I, I don't know what to do. You know, it's in the midst of that kind of a mess that often God grows us and works in our life in ways that we, we would never know. And often we say, well, that just doesn't seem right. I mean, I come here on a Sunday morning. Everyone's so dressed so nice. Everyone looks so happy. Their world's all put together. It's only mine that's in chaos. We say, well, may, maybe, it's, maybe it's my problem. Maybe it's, uh, you know, that I'm not a good Christian. Or maybe I'm just not spiritual enough. Or maybe I did something in the past and now God is visiting bad karma on me. Or, or, or maybe God just isn't in control at all. 
You know, if you think those things, you'd be wrong. This kind of thing happens in every Christian's life from time to time. And it's not that you're not spiritual enough. Some of the the greatest Christians in history have had huge struggles with God. But in the middle of those struggles, they didn't let go of him. They clung to him. And God doesn't do karma. God does grace and forgiveness and love. And no matter what's going on in your life, even if it's out of control for you, it's not out of control for him. If you let him, he's going to work in the middle of it all. He's going to work in your life in ways that they wouldn't, he could never do if your world was just bliss and, 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 and a bed of roses. But it doesn't happen right away. But down the road, if you trust him, you look back and say, you know that hard period in my life? Oh, I look back and I see how faithful God was there and there and there. And he built and grew me in ways that would have never happened otherwise. This is what Hagar's going to do now. She's going to go back. But it isn't going to be easy for her. She's going to need incredible strength and perseverance and courage and faith. And the question is, where is she going to get that? I mean, this isn't some great woman of faith. How is she going to have the strength to do it all? Look at what she says. Verses 13 and 14. So she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahoi Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar does something that no one else in the Bible ever did. She gives God a name. She's the only one in all the Bible, this, this frightened, runaway Egyptian slave, to give God a name. And the name that she gives him is, You are the God who sees me. You're the God who sees my mess. You're the God who sees all the trouble I'm in. You're the God who knows that I'm actually partly responsible for it, but I'm not totally responsible for it. And you seek me out. And you call me to do the hard things. But you also promise that you will work in the midst of the hard things. You are the God who sees me. And because of that, I know that you will look after me. You're the one who will give me the strength and the perseverance and the courage and the faith that I need. I'm not going to do this in my own strength. I'm going to do it in your strength. And this is the third lesson that we learned from Hagar's experience with God. And that's this. God is a God who sees us and cares for us. He'll never abandon us. In fact, it's the opposite. He sees us in all the messiness of our lives, the grinding tension, the drama, the heartache. And he'll care for us through it all. And we'll do it in his strength. You can rely on him because that's who he is. And because that's who God is, that's what Hagar does. She obeys God and goes back to Abram and Sarai. And listen to how the story ends in verses 15 and 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hagar does it. She obeys God. She goes back. And God goes with her. And God works in the midst of it all. So here's the question. Where are you at today? You know, for many of you, your world's going very well. If that's the case for you, God bless you. Praise God for that. That's his good grace, his kindness in your life. And you just live in that. You just enjoy that. You keep serving him in the midst of the bountiful blessing in your life. But but don't forget this story. Because there may come a time when things aren't going so well. You remember this story. But others of you here today, you could totally relate to this. 
You, you just know, I mean, this is my story. I entered with good expectations, with good intentions, and it's a mess. It's so interesting, you know, uh, the well here, the Bible tells us that it was located between two towns, one called uh, Kadesh and one called Bered. And the Bible names always have meaning, and Kadesh means sanctuary, and Bered means hailstorm. And God finds this, this woman out in the middle of the wilderness, having left the sanctuary, and maybe knowing or unknowingly headed towards the hailstorm. And he says to her, he speaks to her with dignity and compassion, and she, he invites her to come back. And he promises her that even though it won't be easy, that he'll go with her. You know, if you're running away, either physically or emotionally, you've checked out. God's inviting you to go back with him. You should go with him. You should stop running. You should, you should trust him because he'll see you through whatever it is that you're facing. And then finally, there are some here today. Well, maybe your world's going well. Maybe it's a mess. Maybe it's somewhere in between. But you, you've actually got a different issue. And you, your issue is this whole God thing in general. You're not so sure about it. You're a little bit like Anne Lamont. You, you know, you kind of feel like this thing is following you around. You can't quite get away from it. And God is pursuing you. And you know, if you're feeling that, you know what? Today you should say yes to God. He is a good God. He's so gracious and kind and gentle and loving and he sees you and he cares for you. And if you invite him into your life, he will change your life. And you know, if you want to know how to do that right after I'm done praying, in just a minute here, you just turn to the person who brought you and say, you know, I'm kind of interested in that. Can you tell me more? And they'll be glad to help you. And if not, then, then you just say to them, if you prefer, you just say to them, can you hang out here? And right after the service, you go through these doors and just right across the lobby to the Welcome Center there. And there's some people there. You just tell them, I want to know more about what it means to, to know God. And they'll answer your questions and they'll help you know God. If you feel God tugging on your heart today, don't leave this place today without answering that call on your life. He loves you and he'll change your life. All right? All right, let's stand for closing prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the kind of God that you are. A good, a kind, a gracious God. And you are the God who sees us. You're not not the kind of God who just started the world and then just walked away and said, you're a mess, you deal with it. Instead, Father, you see each of us and you know what's going on in our life. And I pray this morning, particularly for those people who are facing difficult situations. Father, I just lift them up to you this day, God, that they might know that you see them. In fact, not only do you see them, but you seek them out. You want to talk to them. You want to hear them. Father, you want to work in the midst of their situation. And so, God, I just, I just pray that they would find their faith and their strength and their hope in you. And, Father, that they wouldn't run, but they would trust you. I pray for them. But, Father, I also pray for those here today who don't know you, but you've been pursuing them. You keep bringing up you in their life, things that cause them to think about you, people who've come into their life who speak about you. And, Father, by your, by your wisdom, you have brought them here today. And Father, I pray for them that this would be the day that they would invite you into their life. This would be the day that they would say, okay, God, I quit. I I invite you in. I want you to help me. Father, I pray that you would change their hearts even this day. You would change their lives. And Father, for all of us on this day, 
May we live in the light of who you are, such a good God. May we walk and serve and and go from this place filled with joy because you're so good to us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day.